Good day to you wherever you are. My name is Edmund Senanulochu. This is Thoughts, the law of thoughts, malicious prosecution. Welcome to Lord You. Now imagine that you are in your house without having committed any crime. Somebody comes, arrests you by himself, a private citizen, and sends you to the police station to the police station and accuses you of murder. How would that feel? Imagine also that the person went to the police station and instigated police people, directed them to come and arrest you for a crime that you haven't committed. That will be malicious prosecution. Now, according to the case in of Musa and Limo Wulana, to succeed in malicious prosecution, you have to prove five ele elements. Now, you have to prove that the person who came to maliciously prosecute you initiated a criminal pro prosecution against you it must be a criminal prosecution two that the criminal proceedings terminated in the plaintiff's favor in your favor that means that you were acquitted and discharged that the defendant undertook or instigated or procured the prosecution with no reasonable or probable cause so the prosecution was was without any reasonable or probable probable cause for that the defendant acted maliciously or wickedly five that the plaintiff suffered damage as a result of the prosecution now let's take this elements one by one proof of prosecution by the defendant now the plaintiff must prove that he was prosecuted prosecuted by the defendant this means that he must prove a the defendant himself conducted a prosecution or b he or she procured instigated directed ordered or actively or was instrumentally active in the prosecution now this requirement was set out in the case of Sodua and Obing. The appellant had, in a letter to the police, complained that the respondent had broken into his room and stolen his properties whilst he was away from home. He, in writing the letter, supported by affidavit, had relied on information given him by his son and uncle. He called for immediate investigation and police action. The police conducted their own investigation. The investigator advised against prosecution but his superior the assistant commissioner of police of sunyani thought otherwise and ordered a prosecution the prosecution of the respondents on stealing from the appellant's home ended in their acquittal, acquittal and discharge thereupon the respondents brought an action in the high court sunyani against the appellant for malicious prosecution the trial judge concluded that the appellant was instrumental in putting the law in force and instigated a prosecution found for the respondents the appellant appealed. It was held allowing the appeal that the respondent had failed to prove that it was the appellant and not the police who initiated the prosecution. Now, so all these, all but one element may be present, your case will fail. So the requirement is therefore that the plaintiff must establish that the defendant actively instigated the prosecution or was instrumental in the uh, in the prosecution or else then the defendant is not liable so in the case of Dambi and Bexley the plaintiff had been in the service of the defendant a doctor as groom 
and gardener and left. While he was gardener, he lent his successor two pairs of horse clipping machines to clip the horses. Which he when he resigned, he took those clipping machines away. The defendant had seen the machines in his stables and thought they were his. When he did not see them again, he asked the groom about his new groom about them, and he was told that the plaintiff had taken them away and that they belonged to the plaintiff. Nevertheless, the defendant sent for the police. He told them that he had lost two pairs of clippers and they had seen them with the plaintiff. The police went and without further communication to the defendant, the police arrested the plaintiff and charged him with the offense because they found two pairs of clippers similar to those described. The plaintiff was acquitted in an action for false imprisonment and malicious prosecution by the plaintiff. It was held that Malicious prosecution must fail because there was no evidence that the defendant had been instrumental in putting the criminal law into force. Now, in the case of Onogin and Leventis, the employers were held not to have actively instigated the arrest and therefore were not liable for malicious, malicious prosecution. But in Musa and Limo Bulana, the appellant made a complaint against the defendant that they had been unlawfully fishing in the village dam, the only source of drinking water for the village. They were acquitted and discharged and brought, and, and brought no action. No evidence was led by the defendant on whether they suffered damage. The Court of Appeal restated the five requirements which a plaintiff for malicious prosecution must prove to succeed. On damage, the Court of Appeal quoted Saville and Roberts with approval. But to go with the police to point a person out is not to prosecute him. So if you unknowing or if you knowingly make a false complaint which results in a person being prosecuted, the first requirement is satisfied. But if you just go and point out the person, it is not malicious prosecution right so uh, in martin and watson the house of lords held that an informant who falsely and maliciously gives information to the police can be said to have initiated prosecution for purposes of malicious prosecution now the prosecution which is the basis of a malicious prosecution malicious prosecution action must be a criminal prosecution but note the exception where bankruptcy and winding up proceedings which are civil actions were held sufficient support and to, to support an action in malicious prosecution the case was in court hill mining co and ire and i in this case the defendant a shareholder of the plaintiff's company instructed brokers to sell his shares and signed a transfer later the brokers told him that they were finding it difficult to sell the shares but they did not transfer them back to the defendant after waiting for 10 or 11 days he brought a, pet a petition for the winding up of the company on the ground that there was fraud in the formation of the company and that it could not carry on business for profit now the company had property of a large amount and its debts were insignificant the defendant also had ceased to be a shareholder his shares having been sold by the brokers unknown to him 
When he discovered his shares had been sold, he gave notice to withdraw the petition which was ultimately dismissed without costs. The company sued him for falsely and maliciously and without reasonable and probable cause bringing the petition. At the trial, no proof of damage to the company was given beyond the cost of defending itself against the prosecution and upon this ground, the company's action was dismissed. On appeal, it was held that malicious prosecution could lie because the pet petition was injurious to the credit of the company. There was want of reason and probable cause since it was a going concern contrary to the petitioner's claim. So the jury ought to have asked whether the petitioner was actuated by malice. Now, the second element is that the case must terminate in the plaintiff's favor. Now, this means that the plaintiff must be acquitted and discharged of the offense. This is because the thought lies in termination in the plaintiff's favor of criminal proceedings. For this reason, it is irrelevant whether the conviction is one against which there is no right of appeal or one which has been obtained by the fraud of the prosecutor. The last point is illustrated by the decision in Basibe and Matthews or Base Bay and Matthews. Here, the plaintiff alleged that the defendant falsely and maliciously and without reasonable and probable cause initiated prosecution against the plaintiff before a justice of peace, where he was charged with assaulting and beating her and was convicted, fined and costs were awarded against him. There being no appeal from the said conviction, it was held that the rule that for a plaintiff to succeed in an action in malicious prosecution, he must show that the criminal prosecution terminated in his favor applies even to convictions for which there is there was no appeal. So termination in his favor also means that the plaintiff was not convicted of the particular offense preferred against him. If convicted of a lesser offense, proceedings have terminated in his favor. Example, manslaughter for murder or dishonestly receiving for stealing. The authority is bowler and holder. Now, in that case, the plaintiff was indicted under Section 4 of the Newspaper Libel Act for publishing a libel knowing it, it to be false. He was committed to trial. At the trial, the jury found him guilty of publishing the libel but found that he did not know it was false. This, in fact, amounted to a verdict of not guilty of the original charge, but the plaintiff was sentenced to a term of imprisonment. On his release, he, was, he brought an action for malicious prosecution against the defendant. The judge withdrew the case from the jury when it was shown that the plaintiff had been convicted. On appeal, Day, J, decided that there should be a new trial because the plaintiff had been charged with a graver, with a graver offense under Section 4. And but was convicted of a lesser offense under Section 5. This conviction was no bar to an action for malicious prosecution under Section 4. He pointed out that, Wills J pointed out that the plaintiff had not been convicted of the offense for which he was put on trial. He noted that to put a man on his trial for a much graver offense than you have any chance of convicting him, him is a legal wrong. Now, 
An entry of nolly prosequire by the Attorney General as he may be entitled to do under Article 88 of the 1992 Constitution or by an officer lawfully authorized by him is termination in the plaintiff's favor. Although nolly prosequire carries with it liberty to prosecute on the same facts and charge later on. Now on the issue of nolly prosequire, let's look at the case of Nana Ikuamua Boatin and Yeboa. In that case, the appellant had been successfully sued in the High Court, Accra. They appealed to the Supreme Court on two grounds. A. They had reasonable and probable cause for the prosecution and B. They had acted without malice. The facts were that the respondent was the Omahini of Kwehu. He lodged a complaint against the appellants that they had paid customary dues to the Adontinhini of Abetifi without his consent. An arbitration presided over by the Krontinhini was held. The arbitration found the appellants wrong and they apologized to the Omanhini. They paid pacification fees in accordance with custom and also provided some drinks, which were schnapps. Then the appellants complained to the police, turned around, complained to the police that the respondent had extorted money from them. The police refused to take any action as they felt the complaint disclosed nothing criminal. The appellants instituted a private prosecution in the district magistrate's court. That court found that a prima facie case had been made out and committed the respondent to stand trial. The attorney general subsequently entered a nolly prosequire. After that, the respondent instituted his, this action against which the appellants appealed. The appeal was dismissed. The court of appeal was of the view that, having regard to the circumstances, malicious prosecution had been made out. The appellants knew that all that had happened was the application of customary law, so the respondent had not extorted money from them, even though the prosecution was after the counsel's at, was. But even though the prosecution was after counsel's advice and was in fact conducted by counsel, yet the fact that counsel was not told of the arbitration, the fact that they were guilty, they were found guilty by the said arbitration, and the monies paid were for pacification, rendered the involvement of counsel worthless. So, on the evidence, it was reasonable to conclude that there was there was want of reasonable and probable cause for which, in the circumstances, in inference of malice could be made. On damage, the Court of Appeal held that the prosecution damaged the fame and reputation of the respondent. Now, let's go to the third element, which is absence of reasonable and probable cause. Now, the existence of reasonable and probable cause is a question of law and not of fact. Now, the plaintiff must prove that the defendant prosecuted him without reasonable and probable cause. The plaintiff must establish this in two ways by showing a the prosecutor whether the defendant himself or herself or a surrogate in law had no honest belief in the plaintiff's probable guilt when he prosecuted him or b that the prosecutor had such belief but the facts could not lead an ordinarily prudent and cautious person to that conclusion i.e the plaintiff was rash in his judgment now Reasonable and probable cause was explained in Hicks and Faulkner. The defendant was a landlord of a house in Belgrave Road, St. John's Wood. The father of the plaintiff was a tenant of that house. In February 1879, the defendant brought an action in the county court against the plaintiff's father for alleged arrears of rent. The father's defense was that he had given up the premises before he, the alleged rent accrued. 
To support this claim, the father called the plaintiff who swore that he had, at his father's request, given the key to the defendant. After that action, the defendant indicted the plaintiff at the Central Criminal Court for perjury. The plaintiff was acquitted. He then brought a malicious prosecution against the defendant. The judgment was given in favor of the defendant i.e. the plaintiff lost the action. Subsequently, the plaintiff obtained a rule nisi for a new trial. That means that the plaintiff appealed on two grounds, namely that a. the judge misdirected the jury and b. the verdict was against the weight of evidence. Now, the disputed direction was as follows. The judge told the jury alternatively that they could not arrive at a conclusion as to which of the parties was speaking the truth. The plaintiff had not made out his case and the defendant was entitled to judgment if they thought that the plaintiff did, did give up the key, but the defendant, owing to defective memory, had forgotten the occurrence and went on with the prosecution, honestly believing that the plaintiff had sworn falsely and corruptly. Then the jury could not be justified in saying that the defendant maliciously and without reasonable and probable cause prosecuted the plaintiff and the defendant could be entitled to judgment. Now, Hawkins J defined what reasonable and probable cause was in this case. He said that an honest belief in the guilt of the accused based upon full conviction founded upon reasonable grounds of the existence of a state of circumstances which, assuming them to be true, would reasonably lead an ordinarily prudent and cautious and not rash man placed in the position of the accuser to the conclusion that the person charged was probably guilty of the crime imputed. There must first be first an honest belief of the accuser in the guilt of the accused. Secondly, such belief must be based on an honest conviction of the existence of the circumstances which led the accuser to that conclusion. Thirdly, such secondly mentioned belief must be based upon reasonable grounds by this it means that such grounds would lead any fairly cautious man in the defendant's position so to believe that such an event had occurred. Fourthly, the circumstances so believed and relied on by the accuser must be such as amount to reasonable ground for the belief in the guilt of the accused. Now, in Glinsky and Maclever, Maclever is spelled M-C-L-V-E-R. It says that the existence of reasonable and probable cause is a question of law for the judge. The defendant's knowledge of fact negativing the plaintiff's guilt is relevant to the honesty of his belief. Another relevant consideration is taking legal advice. Abbott's case, that is in Abbott's case, if there was legal advice that was taken then you have reasonable and probable cause and probably will, will lie. Now, this will, have, this will lie only if counsel is fully briefed and apprised of the full facts. The interposition of legal advice before the prosecution will absolve the defendant of any liability of malicious prosecution. In other words, the advice will meet the reasonable and probable test. Now, in Glinsky and McClever, on 13 September 1955, defendant, a criminal investigation department detective sergeant, arrested a plaintiff, believing him to be involved in a series of frauds on textile manufacturing houses and going under a different name, Davis. 
The plaintiff was not picked out as at an identification parade as the man known as Davis and was subsequently released. On September 21, 1955, a solicitor working with the legal department of the New Scotland Yard delivered to counsel a brief for the prosecution of certain persons and also to advise on Glinsky aspect of the matter. On 22nd September, the plaintiff gave evidence for the defense at a criminal trial. The police, be the police believed he had at the trial perjured himself. The solicitor, after consultation, consultation with the counsel, issued a warrant for the arrest of the plaintiff and charged him with conspiracy to defraud. The plaintiff alleged that the defendant told him he was being tried for giving evidence at the other trial. He was tried on the conspiracy charge and acquitted. He sued the defendant for damages for false imprisonment and malicious prosecution. The judge put the following questions to the jury on the malicious prosecution action. A. Has it been proved that the police officer, in starting the prosecution of the appellant for conspiracy to defraud, was actuated by malice, that is, any motive or motives other than a desire to bring the appellant to justice? Yes. B. Did the police officer honestly believe on the relevant date, 29th September, that the appellant was guilty of the offense of conspiracy to defraud? No. The judge decided there was no reasonable and probable cause for the prosecution. The defendant appealed to the court of appeal which allowed the appeal. The plaintiff then appealed to the House of Laws. It was held dismissing the appeal that the second question should not have been left to the jury because though it is the law that malice can, in appropriate cases, be inferred from an absence of reasonable and probable cause for prosecution, it is also the law that want of reasonable and probable cause should be established by itself and not be inferred from the existence of malice now let's look at the fourth element was the the one who prosecuted the defendant actuated by malice now the plaintiff must prove that the defendant was actuated by malice and prosecuted him in prosecuting him malice covers not only spite and ill will but also any motive other than a desire to bring a criminal to justice According to Lord Devlin in Glinsky and McClever, malice relates to the prosecutor's motive. This means that the prosecution must have been with ill will or spite. Prosecution of the plaintiff on any motive other than bringing him to justice is malice. Thus, to succeed in an action for malicious prosecution, as uh, Weir notes, Weir is W-E-I-R notes the plaintiff must show that the defendant was both a knave and a fool the performance of a duty required by law cannot evidence malice that is in abort's case now note that malice can be inferred from the absence of reasonable and probable cause but not vice versa reasonable and probable cause cannot be inferred from malice but malice can be inferred from reasonable and probable cause that is in glinsky and mcclever now the fifth element is that there must be damage which was done to the plaintiff so he must have suffered some damage so chief justice holt laid down the heads of the heads of damage recognized under this thought in the case of Saville and Roberts. Saville and Roberts. Here, the plaintiff alleged that the defendant maliciously and wickedly intending to oppress the plaintiff caused him to be maliciously indicted of a riot and that he was acquitted. He alleged injury, injury was caused to his name and he was 
put to expenses in defending himself. Chief Justice Holt held that there are three sorts of damages, any one of which is sufficient to support the action. A. Damage to his name i.e. necessarily and naturally affects the fair name of the person if he is accused of a scandalous matter b damage to his person where he could lose his life or liberty if he is for example imprisoned and c damage to his property if he is made to incur charges and expenses for his defense so what amounts to damage was explained in Wyffen and Bailey. Wyffen and Bailey is W-I-F-F-E-N, Wyffen, and Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y. In that case, the plaintiff, as occupier, was asked to clean certain rooms in his house considered dirty. When he failed to do this, Bailey, acting on the instructions of the defendant counsel, preferred a complaint before the Rumford justices. At the hearing, the justices dismissed the complaint and awarded the defendant costs. The plaintiff in the trial had, in defending himself, incurred further costs. He brought the present action for malicious prosecution against defendants. At the hearing, the jury found that the defendants were actuated by malice in bringing the complaint and the judge ruled that there was no reasonable and probable cause. The defendants appealed. It was held that the difference between solicitor and client costs and party and party costs was not legal damage for purposes of an action in malicious prosecution. So the appeal was allowed. The court felt that there was no damage within the heads of damage listed by Chief Justice Bolt in Saville and Robertson to support an action in malicious prosecution. But, but in Berry and BTC, the plaintiff pulled the communications court while traveling on a train between Brighton and Lansing. He was charged with a breach of Section 12 of the Regulation of Railways Act 1865, convicted and fined. On appeal, her conviction was quashed and she was awarded 15 guineas cost. She brought an action for malicious prosecution, claiming in earlier that, by reason of the charge, she had been injured in her reputation and had been held up in ridicule and suffered pain of mind and had been put to expense in defending herself. Itself. The defendants put up the defense that the statement of claim disclosed no damage of which the plaintiff was entitled to complain at law and thus disclosed no cause of action. Diplock J upheld the defendant's, the defendant's contention and dismissed the claim with costs. The plaintiff appealed on the ground that the judge misdirected himself both in substance and in law. It was held allowing the appeal that the expenses incurred by the plaintiff in the course of her defense in the court of summary trial and before the recorder over and above the sum of 15 guineas awarded her was sufficient to support an action for malicious prosecution. Thus, a distinction was drawn between the position in respect of criminal proceedings and civil proceedings. Now, this brings us to the end of malicious prosecution under the thought of law of thought. I'll see you in the next podcast.